down south to the land of the pines I'm thumbing my way in a North Carolina Staring up the road and pray to God I see headlights I made it down the coast in 17 hours Picking me a bouquet of dogwood flowers And I'm hoping for rally I can see my baby tonight Welcome to the Pamela Co. Porch Podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Carey. And today we have with us Scott Russ, one of the founders of Bedlam Vodka in Durham, North Carolina. Scott, we're so excited that you joined us today. So tell us a little bit about Bedlam Vodka. Sure. Um, so there were there's really five people behind it, and um, I used to be a lawyer. So if I if I order this in a very logical way, I apologize. It could sometimes get a little dry, but the the, the start of it really was um, myself and Brandon Evans. Uh, Brandon and I went to law school together, and uh, we got out of law school. We practiced for. 10, 11, 12 years, and um, he had a, a, a practice, I had a practice, and we stayed in touch, um, but we didn't cross paths a whole lot, and just out of sort of happenstance, he was selling his firm, I was selling my firm at the same time. I think we both kind of just hit our our limit. Uh, we wanted to do something else, and I honestly don't remember who reached out to who, but we ended up going to lunch. And we just kind of just started talking about, you know, why why do we what what's driving us to go to work in the morning? Is it because we really enjoy what we're doing? Is it just because we're kind of in a routine? And um, it, we we kind of left the lunch with the idea that we really kind of wanted to do something different. We wanted to. Um, go into a completely different line of work. We or we wanted to make something. We wanted to do something we were really passionate about. We wanted to find that passion again. And so we decided to come back and have another lunch. And when uh, we came back to lunch, Brandon brought his uh, business partner Sam Searcy with him. And we just had this big, long two-hour lunch at Mez right up the road um, here in Durham, uh, and just you know, start talking about the things that we want to do, and the uh, the idea of either a brewery or a distillery came up, and I said, you know, I, I've always really been fascinated about about um, brewing. I've made beer for uh, years and years and years. I find it very fascinating. It's almost like a zen-like experience, but uh, the distilling thing would would be really interesting, and so. I think we left that lunch with the idea that we were going to start a distillery, but we really didn't know what what we were going to do. Um, fast forward a few more weeks, we have another lunch, and we're we're basically uh, we're, we're sold on this idea that we're going to start a distillery. We just don't really know what we're going to make. And through the course of that lunch, through the course of conversations, um, I mentioned the fact that you know I've I've got this kind of recipe sort of uh from way back in the day um from one of my grandparents that during the famine they were making uh, a rice-based poutine which is kind of like an irish moonshine and i don't know if you know there's a there's a market for moonshine or irish moonshine in in america or poutine in general um but and i've never made it before so i don't even know what it tastes like but 
it would be something worth exploring. And I think they were both very intrigued with the uh, the 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 context of like you know it being sort of a historical thing, and then us trying to to update it for uh, current consumers. And I think we were all kind of hooked on that. So I took about eight to nine weeks uh, to kind of develop a, a couple of test batches just to see if, if we could make this. And uh, we bought uh, you know a little bit of equipment, some some R and D equipment, and uh, we got all the correct paperwork and permits to do this. Um, I didn't check with my wife first, uh, and I ultimately ended up filling up the kitchen with all these fermenting vessels of rice and different smells, and she was not pleased. But uh, uh, at the end of eight or nine weeks, I had gone through eight or nine test batches and um, found that distilling it in a way that approximated a vodka really kind of made more sense. It was very flavorful. It was very, very smooth. Uh, I'm not a vodka fan. Brandon and Sam were not either. We were more uh, whiskey drinkers or bourbon drinkers. And um, when I brought the, the test batch back to them, I said, you know, just try it on ice. Try and drink it like you would like a bourbon or, or a whiskey. Um, you know, don't mix anything with it. And they all loved it. And we, we thought this is something incredibly unique. It is a vodka, but it's it's really something pushing the boundaries of, of what vodka could be. And so we decided that was going to be our flagship product. I mean, we originally started this conversation about trying to make whiskey or bourbon or something like that. And ultimately, this weird idea that I had tucked away in the back of my mind for Years and years and years uh, made its way through, and that's ultimately what we decided to do. Wow, that is definitely one of those meant-to-be moments where it's just a group of lawyers sitting around having lunch together and then deciding, like, hey, what is it that we really want to do? So it's definitely an inspiring story. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, I, that the irony of all that is not lost on me. I, I still kind of pinch myself uh, every day. It, and it, because this really kind of came about because of a uh, – it wasn't a family reunion. It was more like a like an anniversary party, uh, and a lot of my, my family members, extended family members were there. And I sat down with a grandparent, and I said – this was uh, – I can't, I, I can't remember if it was 2001 or 2004, but it was – I, I basically sat them down. I peeled them away, and I just said, look. I'm uh, too old for you to lie to me anymore. I want to know, like, all the, the nitty-gritty family history. Like, I want to know who went to jail, and I want to know, uh, you know, all the stuff that you've never told us because you thought we were too young to hear. And so I ended up getting out of my grandfather and grandmother all of these really fascinating things that I'd never known before. Uh, and as a side note, if anybody's listening to this, I would highly encourage you, if you have grandparents that are living, corner them and demand answers because, <coughs> excuse me, they are, they are probably sitting on some amazing stories that you've never heard. Um, and I'm really thankful that I was able to do that and, and kind of get them alone and just have this great conversation about all these things that I've never known before, my grandfather's uh, service in the military, um, it, how he and my grandmother met, 
these things I'd never heard of before. And then my grandfather started telling me a little bit about his family uh, in Ireland and uh, my grandmother's family in Ireland, or his family in Scotland, too, and her family in Ireland. And the struggles during the famine and how they were farmers, but they were also really good at distilling pachine. And during the famine, they were making pachine out of rice that they were sneaking in from southern Europe, that they were defying the tax laws and importing grain, um, like corn and barley and wheat, these things that were supposed to be heavily taxed, and they were, along with other families, um, in other areas of the country, they were sneaking these grains in because in the famine, uh, we call it the potato famine, but the great famine of Ireland uh, killed 2 million people, which represented something like 20% of the population. It was a, a pretty massive event. And people were desperate. They were trying to bring in grain left and right uh, to to both eat and to supplement pochine making so, you know, they could have a little bit of, of – um, at the end of the day, um, and so he you know, told me the story about this rice-based poutine that they continued to make when they immigrated to the United States very briefly during Prohibition, um, just as a way uh, – many Southern families did the same thing to make ends meet. Um, during Prohibition, they would essentially moonshine, and I, I found all this incredibly fascinating. I was like, wow, this is this is spectacular, but again, this is – 15, almost 20 years ago, I didn't do anything with it. And the opportunity to to kind of bring that back to life, it, it, there wasn't any recipe that was written down. He didn't hand me some old parchment paper with, you know, a recipe in Gaelic written down on it. But it's just this idea of what they were doing in times when they had no other options was um, – it was something special, and given the opportunity to do this with the backing of all my uh, my other business partners, for them kind of believing and trying to resurrect this recipe was something awesome. And, you know, how everything ties in together with the name and, and where it comes from and the fact that we're, you know, kind of trying to innovate a segment of – the, the beverage market that really hasn't seen any innovation outside of a bunch of different flavored vodkas uh, in a long, long time um, was something really special to us. So, yeah, I mean, it's that's a really long way of saying uh, I, I I do pinch myself every day. I, I'm amazed at our good fortune. So when you were talking to your grandfather, he didn't necessarily just like hand you this recipe and pass it down with the intent of passing it down, right? Like he was more talking to you in just a conversation and you were like, oh, wait a minute, you made it from rice? Is that kind of how that worked? He didn't corner me and say, hey, I got, I need to let you know. We were <laughs> he, uh, no, it was, it was all part of a much broader conversation that, and, and that's why it just kind of, you know, nestled its its way into my gray matter and, and didn't rear its, its head until that second or third lunch. I was like, hey, you know, there's a possibility that, you know, we could tie we, – we, we didn't want to just be another company just coming on the market like, hey, here's another vodka. Hey, here's, 
you know, let's just make another vodka out of corn or let's make another vodka out of wheat. And there's virtually nothing. Right. There's there's nothing to distinguish. I mean, it, one of the things that I talk about on the tour, whenever I give the tour at the distillery, is how much um, other vodka brands try to use just pure marketing to differentiate themselves. And, you know, we, that's part of the game is, you know, we, we think that we have a very nice-looking bottle. We have a very nice-looking logo. I think we have a good ethos behind the company. But – the history and the authenticity behind it sets us apart. And so that was that was one of the special things for us is we didn't want to get into this to just run with the pack. We we wanted to and in some ways we're finding a little bit we're swimming against the current because that is what people typically do when they start a distillery is you know they'll they'll try and, and crank out a product that not really differentiated from any other. And for us, we just kind of looked at and took stock of what made us different and tried to build on that. The grain is very different. There's probably four other rice vodkas in the world, maybe three. Um, And most of them, I think if not all of them are all um, either made from Japanese rice and and they associate very heavily with their Japanese heritage. So, you know, the, the grain is very unique, the history is very unique, and the the quality of the product is very unique. It's not, you know, it's not very, it's not bland. It's not this sort of antiseptic blank canvas. And so we had all these things that were in our favor, and it, um, <clears throat> I think it was a pretty easy decision to make uh, in how to move forward with that. So you mentioned in that that some places are sourcing their rice from Japan and other places. Where is it that Bedlam sources their rice from? All of our rice comes from Arkansas right now. Uh, We were pulling from Louisiana and Arkansas. I think we have to talk with our our, uh, plant manager. But I think the last year or the year before, the hurricanes really kind of did a number on Louisiana. So the consistency of the grain was easier to source out of Arkansas, but we uh, we don't aim to offend. We um, you know we, we try to to pull our rice from small farmers who who tend to co-op with other farmers. Uh, right now, from the Delta, we're getting everything from an Arkansas uh, co-op, um, but generally that's that's where it's coming from, Arkansas and Louisiana. There is a type of rice that's grown in uh, predominantly South Carolina, but North and South Carolina, called Carolina Gold. Uh, we have not tried to use that. Uh, one, because I think that the grain, the rice that's actually grown in the Delta is more closely related to the rice that they would have been pulling from Southern Europe, from Spain and France during the, the famine. Uh, also, Carolina Gold is crazy expensive. So, if anybody would, you know, be in the market for paying $150 for a bottle of vodka, we're happy to make one. But uh, it's um, <laughs> it's a it's a fantastic rice. It's just from a, uh, a manufacturing perspective, the cost is way too high. That's not saying that we won't do some kind of special edition maybe in the future. But um, yeah, we, there's there's a pretty healthy rice uh, market 
in the United States. One would one never really think that one of the predominant exports of the United States would be rice. But uh, we're right on up there. Wow, I had no idea that the United States played such a big role in the rice production. So tell us a little bit more about Bedlam. How did you guys come about the name Bedlam Vodka? So <clears throat> we we did hire a, a marketing company, or we hired a, I don't know what they would be, really be called. Um, basically, we, we hired them to, to help us with the branding because we didn't really know what to to call it. And I, you know, was doing some research on, um, you know, Irish history and, and you know, trying to find something to relate to, something to, to pull the name from. And um, I shared a lot of that research with that branding company, and they uh, they presented us with several options. And one was was Bedlam. And, uh, you know, it, it comes from Predominantly, it comes from uh, it's an English word that meant chaos and madness and disruption. Uh, but it also is the name of a small well, it's the name of part of a small town in northwestern Ireland, and uh, in County Donegal, which is honestly one of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth. If anybody gets a chance to go to Ireland, make your way up the wild Atlantic Way, stop in County Donegal, and just have your breath taken away. It's amazing. Uh, but there's this little tiny town in County Donegal called Gordahork. And Gordahork means field of corn uh, in Gaelic. So I mean, it's literally like one of the centers of, of agricultural uh, commerce in in Ireland at the time, um, around 18, 1860 to 1890. And um, uh, at that time, the English, basically the nobility, the crown, owned all of the land. They owned all the farmland. The Irish farmers didn't really own anything. And so they would go to Gordahork, they would pay their taxes, they would sell their crops, they would pay the, the leasehold amounts. Um, but as you get closer to the end of the 19th century, into that 1870 to 1890 period, the English realized that a lot of that Irish farmland was very rich in limestone, or other mineralities that made it more valuable than just sitting there as, as farmland. And certainly 20 years ago, they had just gone through a, a massive famine, and uh, you know it, it wasn't producing any any crops. So they started to think well, maybe it's worth more um, what's in the ground than what's coming out of the ground. And so they decided to march through the country in certain parts of the country, and they would evict whole towns. They would evict farms or farmers and their families off this land without any care of where they were going to have to go or how they were going to live. And they got to Gordahork, uh, a proxy for the for the English, and with the support of a hundred or so English troops and Scottish troops that were uh, essentially mercenaries. They've been hired to support this proxy to come in and make this proclamation. Um, we're taking the town back, and you're to leave, gather up all your belongings, and go. And they just rioted. I mean, immediately they just fought back. And they were throwing river stones. They were throwing bricks. They were throwing boiling water and, like, basically iron rods. Uh, they call them iron missiles. From the top of the biggest uh, 
building in town, two stories, massive, huge building. Um, and they, I mean, for you know a couple of days, two or three days, they fought these guys. They were trying to come into town to to evict these families, and they held them at the foot of the bridge that led into town. The proxy went back to the landowners and said, "You're not taking Gordahork. You just might as well move on to the next one." And they did, and they they left Gordahork alone. But we went to Ireland to kind of verify some of this too. Uh, and the story that we got is how that area got its name. Um, uh, this little area became known as Bedlam uh, because when people were running into the fight to replace people that were running out, they had been beaten, they were bloodied. Uh, as the people were running in or passing the people running out, they said, what's going on down there? And the people running out said, don't go down there, it's Bedlam which was a, a popular word uh, way back in the day that meant chaos, madness, disruption, and the name stuck. And so that's the Bedlam Bridge. That was the Bedlam Riot. There's this beautiful little cul-de-sac there in town that's known as Bedlam. There are all these wonderful little patio homes, and none of the young people that live in those understand why it's called Bedlam. Uh, but, you know, it, it, the name stuck. It, it was this massive, crazy riot of people pushed to the edge and they fought back to reclaim what was inherently theirs to begin with, even if they didn't have necessarily a, a legal claim recognized by the crown. That was their town, and they took it back. And so <clears throat> all of these names, all of these these you know, logos and identities that they presented to us, that's the one that we kept coming back to, not necessarily because of the fight, but because that's what that that most accurately represented what we were trying to accomplish in in bringing a new product into a very crowded marketplace. We weren't trying to blend in. We were trying to stand out. We were trying to cause a little disruption. We were trying to cause a little chaos. Um, we've got more authenticity in our little finger than than most brands have in an entire palette of product. And, you know, we, we look different. The packaging is different. We, we moved away from pretty frosted glass and, you know, these, I mean, I think it's beautiful in its own right, but it's, it's a little more rugged. Um, and then the flavor, the, the taste, the drinkability of it is very different than most vodkas, if not all vodkas, in my opinion. And so, uh, you know, in a much broader sense, the name Bedlam meant a lot more to us than just that because that fight represented a lot of other things that I think historically related to making spirits and um, distilling and, and, you know, the, the 5,000 years of human history behind making uh, adult beverages, if you will. Uh, it, it really kind of spoke to us in a way. And we were talking earlier that, the irony of all that's not lost on me. It was just, you know, that that name spoke to us, and it was just it was perfect. So that, that one jumped out. There were a lot of other names that that were presented, and I can't imagine us at this point going with any other name. Um, they didn't mean anything. They didn't didn't mean anything to us. They didn't mean anything to the to the to the uh, the spirit that was in the bottle, and that the bedlam was just perfect. Oh my God. I love that story so much. I mean, just the idea that it's a group of attorneys getting together and totally changing their, 
their trajectory of what they're doing in their career probably caused some bedlam in your own lives, right? I mean, I can't imagine that your friends and family weren't like, what are you doing? Yeah, I, I, a lot of people continue to ask me, hey, how, how's it going? You still doing all right? I'm like, yeah, man, we're doing better and better every month. Uh, it's the best, best decision I ever made. It's the scariest decision I ever made because I had, um, I, I we just had our third child, and you know I'm I'm leaving everything that I've known for the last decade plus. I mean, the last 15 years has been all law all the time, and um, yeah, I mean it, that was we, we were met with a few stares, but you know secretly people would pull me aside and be like, I wish that I could, can do you have an opening? Can I come work for you? And uh, so I mean I, at that point I, I knew that I was on the right track when when you know, you're getting these <clears throat> these comments of support and and uh, the the, en- the the comic envy of some of your colleagues. Um, yeah, you're their hero. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I mean, I was I was drinking enough. I figured I might as well make it. Um, but may as well we make a living from it, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's not to say that this was not the hardest thing I have ever done. I'm not talking about just making the decision. And I think that that all of us that were there from day one uh, helping pull this thing together, because, I mean, you were talking about a lot of money, a lot of time in uh, putting a lot of just failed batches, just trying to understand how this this massive equipment that we've got now, these aren't the little 10-gallon and 50-gallon test batches that I was running. I mean, we're, we're doing, you know, close to 1,400 gallons at a time now, and, you know, it's not a linear expansion, so there were a lot of question marks. There were a lot of variables that we had to solve for. So a lot of sleepless nights, and when I talk about sleepless nights, I'm, I'm talking, I have I have gone 36 hours a couple times in a, a week uh, with no sleep trying to get this stuff working, but everybody that was there from the beginning will will tell you that it's hard. It's one of the hardest things we've ever done. But I, if you told me I have to go back and do it all over again, I'd do it in a heartbeat. I love listening to your passion behind that. I mean, to hear you say how difficult it was and how hard it was, but you're also saying that you would do it all over again because it was worth it. That makes a pretty exciting story. So for everybody listening and they want to try Bedlam Vodka or they haven't had it yet, where can they find Bedlam Vodka? So in North Carolina, we're in pretty much every ABC store statewide. Uh, some places you might find us on the North Carolina shelf. North Carolina's done a pretty good job of promoting its native brands. Um, otherwise, we're on the vodka shelf. Um, we're in several uh, restaurants, hundreds of restaurants statewide on a lot of fantastic cocktail menus. Uh, outside of North Carolina, we have uh, South Carolina. I'm not exactly sure where we are. I think we're we're mostly concentrated in the Charleston area in South Carolina. We are pretty predominant throughout Georgia, and uh, we recently uh, got some distribution in Oklahoma and New Jersey. Uh, I know those are odd add-ons, but Oklahoma made a lot of sense because the historic rivalry between the University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma State University is known as the Bedlam Rivalry. 
And so we figured, well, it just makes sense. We'll just go out there. They know our name already. Oh, wow. Nobody's going awesome. mis- to mispronounce it. So, uh, and in New Jersey, we just, we love our distributor. Um, they are huge fans of the brand. I think they see, I think they see what all the distributors see is something incredibly unique that uh, could potentially redefine how people uh, look at vodka. So, right now that's where we are. We're getting a little bit of distribution in North, excuse me, in New York and California here in 2019, but um, that's where we are. Very cool. So if our listeners want to find out more information about you guys, you're on Facebook, Instagram, what other ways can they find more information about Bedlam Vodka? Sure. Uh, BedlamVodka.com. We've got a lot of great cocktail recipes. Um, doesn't matter what your, your skill level is. My skill level in making cocktails is uh, virtually non-existent. So I'm very appreciative of the two and three ingredient cocktails that our master mixologist Jesse Cortez has come up with. But I mean he's got some things on there that if you if you're willing to to put two weeks into infusing something, uh you can come up with uh, some pretty amazing uh, results at the end. Bedlambodka.com, that should uh, give you an insight as to some of the the good recipes that we've got. Also Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, I think we're just at Bedlambodka. We're doing a lot of a lot of crazy things. Uh, we've got a lot of events coming up. We're going to be one of the sponsors of the Dreamville Festival in Raleigh, which is a, a major music concert put on by North Carolina native Jay Cole. We're going to be part of um, the Moog Fest music festival here in Durham towards the end of April. You can find us at the Durham Ballpark on opening day. We'll be one of the, the – um, craft cocktails that they'll be serving. We'll also be at Red Hat Amphitheater for their concert series, uh, doling out some some pretty fancy cocktails. A lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. I'm looking at my calendar and I'm trying not to cry. <laughs> well, and you guys offer tours as well, right? So, like we do. I think you said on Fridays. We do, so and that's that also work? on the web on the website. Uh, you can go to bedlamvodka.com. There's a tab at the top that says tours. We do offer uh, fairly consistent times, Friday and Saturday, uh, 12.30, 2.30, 4.30, 6.30. And I think tours are $15. It takes about an hour. You'll get the full history of really kind of how the selling started, uh, not just for us, but I think for, for the majority of, of mankind, uh, taking you all the way through the famine, how our recipe sort of developed and how we updated it. And then we'll take you to the, the manufacturing floor and really show you how it's made. It's completely transparent. We show you from grain to glass the entire process, how it's made. And then at the end, you get a little tiny sample. Thankfully, North Carolina could be changing that law soon. We might be able to offer something different, um, uh, you know, a demonstration on how to mix it in front of you. Right now, we offer you a sample, uh, but you do get to keep your shot glass. And uh, there's some some other nifty little items in our our tasting room that you can take home with you. And, um, yeah, that's bedlambodka.com. Check out the tour tab. Awesome. So is there anything else that you would like to add that you think is an important part of the Bedlam Vodka story? Um, I can't think of anything. You've let me talk and blab for a good long time, and I greatly <laughs> appreciate it. I think it's just important no for people to know that 
uh, you know, and this is one thing that we do touch on in the tour, that um, you should know what goes into what you're drinking. And I think that people are really starting to trend this way. I think in a lot of cuisine, uh, you know, even, I guess, starting at the grocery stores, that that there's this, not necessarily this push that everything has to be organic, but we want to know where our stuff's coming from. We want to know what's going in it. We want to know the process behind it. And I think that this is finally making its way into the spirits industry. And a lot of the major brands are starting to realize that, they need to, to advertise what's in their stuff. And a lot of them have had to change what is in their stuff. You know, you've got a lot that are promoting, hey, now we're using non-GMO grain. Well, granted, we've only been in business for about two years, but we've always used non-GMO grain. And that tour and reading a little bit more about us, I think, gives people an opportunity to understand that there are better options out there. We are certainly one of them. And, um, you know, I just encourage people, learn about what you're making your cocktails with, and I think you'll be surprised. I think you'll be more drawn towards a lot of the grain-to-class things that are happening not only in North Carolina but in the United States as well. Absolutely. I don't – I won't say there's more of a push. I think there's more of an awareness now about, you know, where you're sourcing your food and your alcohol and things like that from. I was just talking to a group, um, the Blue Ridge Women in Agriculture earlier this week, and, you know, they do a great job of really like bringing farmers together with restaurants um, and really talking about like how they source everything. The the girl, Courtney, who I spoke with said it's kind of like a TED talk for the farmer to be able to really explain the importance of these restaurants sourcing their food locally. And it allows the residents to come in and actually, you know, hear the talk as well so that, you know, they're making different choices when they're buying food, not only from like a farmer's market or something, but the restaurants as well. So, you know, the restaurants, um, all the restaurants I've been talking to recently are really pushing that with their spirits too. So, you know, instead of just the farm to table with the vegetables and the meat, they're looking at the grain to glass equivalent um, of where they're sourcing their alcohol from. Oh, I do too. And I think that that's one of those shifts where, you know, maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago, what was considered haute cuisine is, um, you know, it, the, the artistic assembly of all these ingredients to produce a piece of art that you don't want to eat. And now that's kind of shifted. You can still make incredibly beautiful dishes, but I think that the experience in in consuming is being able to understand what it is that you're consuming. And I think that that's the big – that's the foundation uh, under the, the whole farm-to-table and grain-to-glass movement, that it doesn't necessarily have to look like a work of art knowing where it's coming from and understanding meeting the the person that that grew the the wheat that made the bread or or meeting the farmer that raised the the livestock that may be the source of that plate or the center of that plate makes that experience so much richer and and I'm I'm all behind that I wholeheartedly support that approach I think that's a wonderful movement that's going on right now Absolutely I would agree with that well, you and I discussed that uh, we're going to kind of do a little bit of a series, so we're looking forward to having you guys back to talk more about the distilling process and kind of what you mentioned with the tour of how there's a history with the distilling process. So 
we look forward to having oh, yeah. that on our next episode with you as well. Awesome. Yeah, we'd love to be back. You guys have done such an amazing job and have such a great story. I really look forward to seeing what the future holds for Bedlam Vodka. Well, thank you. Uh, it has been an honor, and I can't wait to listen to it when it goes up on the, the interwebs. Thank you to everyone that joined us today on the Pamlico Porch Podcast. We're so excited that we had Scott here with us from Bedlam Vodka. We can't wait to have the next episode with them to learn a little bit more about the distilling process. So we're excited about that. Um, Please look forward to our future episode coming up with Eric Henry, who is one of the founders of Burlington Brew Works, which is a co-op brewery downtown Burlington. So we're excited to bring that to you as well. And then I will be headed to Lake Toxaway, North Carolina, um, find a little bit of history about Lake Toxaway and staying at the Greystone Inn. So I can't wait to share with you that experience as well. And while I'm there, I'll be visiting Gorgeous State Park, which is home to more than 24 waterfalls. So pretty excited about hiking in Gorgeous State Park and seeing exactly what they have to offer. So as always, escape to North Carolina and we'll talk soon. And down south to the land of the pines I'm thumbing my way in a North Carolina Staring up the road And pray to God I see headlights I made it down the coast in 17 hours Picking me a bouquet of dogwood flowers And I'm hoping for Riley I can see my baby tonight